Chapter Thirteen B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Thirteen B. Receiving the Committee of the Convention, Nomination of Douglas, Campaign of eighteen sixty, Various Campaign Reminiscences, Lincoln and the Tall Southerner. The vote of the Springfield clergy, a graceful letter to the poet Bryant, looking up hard spots. Before commencing the cast next morning, and knowing Mr. Lincoln's fondness for a story, I told him one in order to remove what I thought an apprehensive expression, as though he feared the operation might be dangerous. He sat naturally in the chair when I made the cast, and saw every move I made in a mirror opposite as I put the plaster on without interference with his eyesight or his free breathing through the nostrils. It was about an hour before the mold was ready to be removed, and being all in one piece, with both ears perfectly taken, it clung pretty hard, as the cheekbones were higher than the jaws at the lobe of the ear. He bent his head low, and worked the cast off without breaking or injury. It hurt a little, as a few hairs of the tender temples pulled out with the plaster and made his eyes water. He entered my studio on Sunday morning, remarking that a friend at the hotel, Tremont House, had invited him to go to church. "'But,' said Mr. Lincoln, "'I thought I'd rather come and sit for the bust. The fact is,' he continued, "'I don't like to hear cut-and-dried sermons. No, when I hear a man preach, I like to see him act as if he were fighting bees.' And he extended his long arms at the same time, suiting the action to the words. He gave me on this day a long sitting of more than four hours, and when it was concluded we went to our family apartment to look at a collection of photographs which I had made in 1855-6-7, to to in Rome and Florence. While sitting in the rocking-chair he took my little son on his lap, and spoke kindly to him, asking his name, age, etc. I held the photographs up and explained them to him, but I noticed a growing weariness, and his eyelids closed occasionally as if he were sleepy or were thinking of something besides Grecian and Roman statuary, and architecture. Finally, he said, "'These things must be very interesting to you, Mr. Volk, but the truth is I don't know much of history, and all I do know of it I have learned from law-books.' The sittings were continued daily till the Thursday following, and during their continuance he would talk almost unceasingly, telling some of the funniest and most laughable of stories but he talked little of politics or religion during these sittings. He said, "'I am bored nearly every time I sit down to a public dining-table by someone pitching into me on politics. Many people, presumably political aspirants with an eye to future prospects, besieged my door for interviews, but I made it a rule to keep it locked, and I think Mr. Lincoln appreciated the precaution. On our last sitting I noticed that Mr. Lincoln was in something of a hurry. I had finished the head, but desired to represent his breast and brawny shoulders as nature presented them. So he stripped off his coat, waistcoat, shirt, cravat, and collar, threw them on a chair, pulled his undershirt down a short distance, tying the sleeves behind him, and stood up without a murmur for an hour or so. I then said I had done, and was a thousand times obliged to him for his promptness and patience, and offered to assist him to redress, but he said, no, I can do it better alone." I kept at my work without looking toward him, wishing to catch the form as accurately as possible, while it was fresh in my memory. 
He left hurriedly, saying he had an engagement, and with a cordial good-bye, I will see you again soon, passed out. A few minutes later I recognized his steps rapidly returning. The door opened, and in he came, exclaiming, "'Hello, Mr. Volk. I got down on the sidewalk and found I had forgotten to put on my undershirt, and thought it wouldn't do to go through the streets this way.' Sure enough, there were the sleeves of that garment dangling below the skirts of his broadcloth frock-coat. I went at once to his assistance, and helped to undress and redress him all right, and out he went with a hearty laugh at the absurdity of the thing. Returning to the visit with Lincoln at Springfield on the day of his nomination, Mr. Volk says, The afternoon was lovely, bright and sunny, neither too warm nor too cool. The grass, trees, and the hosts of blooming roses, so profuse in Springfield, appeared to be vying with the ringing bells and waving flags. I went straight to Mr. Lincoln's unpretentious little two-story house. He saw me from his door or window coming down the street, and as I entered the gate he was on the platform in front of the door, and quite alone. His face looked radiant. I exclaimed, "'I am the first man from Chicago, I believe, who has the honor of congratulating you on your nomination for President.' Then those two great hands took both of mine with a grasp never to be forgotten, and while shaking them I said, now that you will doubtless be the next President of the United States, I want to make a statue of you, and shall do my best to do you justice." Said he, I don't doubt it, for I have come to the conclusion that you are an honest man. And with that greeting I thought my hands were in a fair way of being crushed. I was invited into the parlour, and soon Mrs. Lincoln entered, holding a rose bouquet in her hand, which she presented to me after the introduction, and in return I gave her a cabinet-size bust of her husband which I had modelled from the large one, and happened to have with me. Before leaving the house it was arranged that Mr. Lincoln would give Saturday forenoon to obtaining full-length photographs to serve me for the proposed statue. On Saturday evening the committee appointed by the convention to notify Mr. Lincoln formally of his nomination, headed by Mr. Ashman of Massachusetts, reached Springfield by special train, bearing a large number of people, two or three hundred of whom carried rails on their shoulders, marching in military style from the train to the old State House Hall of Representatives, where they stacked them like muskets. The evening was beautiful and clear, and the entire population was astir. The bells pealed, flags waved, and cannon thundered forth the triumphant nomination of Springfield's distinguished citizen. The bonfires blazed brightly, and especially in front of that prim-looking white house on Eighth Street. The committee and the vast crowd following it passed in at the front door, and made their exit through the kitchen door in the rear, Mr. Lincoln giving them all a hearty shake of the hand as they passed him in the parlor. By appointment I was to cast Mr. Lincoln's hands on the Sunday following this memorable Saturday, at nine a.m. I found him ready, but he looked more grave and serious than he had appeared on the previous days. I wished him to hold something in his right hand, and he looked for a piece of pasteboard but could find none. I told him a round stick would do as well as anything. Thereupon he went to the woodshed, and I heard the saw go, and he soon returned to the dining-room, where I did the work, whittling off the end of a piece of a broom-handle. I remarked to him that he need not whittle off the edges. "'Oh, well,' said he, "'I thought I would like to have it nice.' When I had successfully cast the mould of the right hand, I began the left pausing a few moments to hear Mr. Lincoln tell me about a scar on the thumb. "'You have heard that they call me a rail-splitter, 
and you saw them carrying rails in the procession Saturday evening. Well, it is true that I did split rails, and one day, while I was sharpening a wedge on a log, the axe glanced and nearly took my thumb off. And there is the scar, you see." The right hand appeared swollen, as compared with the left, on account of excessive handshaking the evening before. This difference is distinctly shown in the cast. That Sunday evening I returned to Chicago with the moulds of his hands, three photographic negatives of him, the identical black alpaca campaign suit of 1858, and a pair of Lynn newly made pegged boots. The clothes were all burned up in the great Chicago fire. The casts of the face and hands I saved by taking them with me to Rome, and they have crossed the sea four times. The last time I saw Mr. Lincoln was in January 1861, at his house in Springfield. His little parlor was full of friends and politicians. He introduced me to them all, and remarked to me aside that since he had sat to me for his bust eight or nine months before, he had lost forty pounds in weight. This was easily perceptible, for the lines of his jaws were very sharply defined through the short beard which he was allowing to grow. Then he turned to the company and explained in a general way that I had made a bust of him before his nomination, and that he was then giving daily sittings to another sculptor, that he had sat for him a week or more, but could not see the likeness, though he might yet bring it out. But, continued Mr. Lincoln, in two or three days after Mr. Volk began my bust, there was the animal himself. And this was about the last, if not the last, remark I ever heard him utter, except the good-bye and his good wishes for my success. Saturday, May 19th, the committee of the Chicago Convention arrived at Springfield to notify Mr. Lincoln of his nomination. The Honorable George Ashman, as chairman of the committee, delivered the formal address, to which Lincoln listened with dignity, but with an air of profound sadness, as though the trials in store for him had already cast their shadows before. In response to the address, Lincoln said, Mr. Chairman, and gentlemen of the committee, I tender to you and through you, to the Republican National Convention, and all the people represented in it, my profoundest thanks for the high honor done me, which you now formally announce deeply, and even painfully sensible of the great responsibility which is inseparable from this high honor, a responsibility which I could almost wish had fallen upon some one of the far more eminent men and experienced statesmen whose distinguished names were before the Convention, I shall, by your leave, consider more fully the resolutions of the Convention, denominated the platform, and without necessary and unreasonable delay respond to you, Mr. Chairman, in writing, not doubting that the platform will be found satisfactory, and the nomination gratefully accepted. And now I will not longer defer the pleasure of taking you and each of you by the hand." A letter was then handed Lincoln containing the official notice, accompanied by the resolutions of the Convention. To this letter he replied a few days later as follows. Springfield, Illinois, May 23, 1860 Sir, I accept the nomination tendered to me by the convention over which you presided, of which I am formally apprised in a letter of yourself and others acting as a committee of the convention for that purpose. The Declaration of Principles and Sentiments which accompanies your letter meets my approval, and it shall be my care not to violate it or disregard it in any part. Employing the assistance of divine providence, and with due regard to the views and feelings of all who were represented in the convention, to the rights of all the states and territories and people of the nation, 
to the inviolability of the constitution and the perpetual union harmony and prosperity of all i am most happy to cooperate for the practical success of the principles declared by the convention in june mr douglas was nominated for the presidency by the democratic convention which met at baltimore on the eighteenth mr douglas made a personal canvass speaking in most of the states north and south and exerting all the powers of which he was master to win success the campaign as mr arnold states has had no parallel the enthusiasm of the people was like a great conflagration like a prairie fire before a wild tornado a little more than twenty years had passed since owen lovejoy brother of elijah lovejoy on the bank of the mississippi kneeling on the turf not then green over the grave of the brother who had been killed for his fidelity to freedom had sworn eternal war against slavery from that time on he and his associate abolitionists had gone forth preaching their crusade against oppression with hearts of fire and tongues of lightning and now the consummation was to be realized of a president elected on the distinct ground of opposition to the extension of slavery for years the hatred of that institution had been growing and gathering force whittier bryant lowell longfellow and others had written the lyrics of liberty the graphic pen of mrs stowe in uncle tom's cabin had painted the cruelties of the overseer and slaveholder but the acts of slaveholders themselves did more to promote the growth of anti-slavery than all other causes the persecutions of abolitionists in the south the harshness and cruelty attending the execution of the fugitive laws the brutality of brooks in knocking down on the floor of the senate charles sumner for words spoken in debate these and many other outrages had fired the hearts of the people of the free states against this barbarous institution beecher phillips channing sumner and seward with their eloquence chase with his logic lincoln with his appeals to the principles of the declaration of independence and to the opinions of the founders of the republic his clear statements his apt illustrations and above all his wise moderation all had swelled the voice of the people which found expression through the ballot-box and which declared that slavery should go no further among the various reminiscences of the memorable presidential campaign of eighteen sixty some of peculiar interest are furnished by dr newton bateman president of knox college illinois dr bateman had known lincoln since eighteen forty two and from the year eighteen fifty eight when dr bateman was elected state superintendent of public instruction in illinois to the close of lincoln's residence in springfield in eighteen sixty one they saw each other daily the testimony of so intimate an acquaintance and one so well qualified to judge the character and abilities of men is of unusual value and it is worth noting that dr bateman remarks that while he was always an admirer of lincoln yet the greatness of the man grew upon him as the years passed by in his professional and public work says dr bateman lincoln not only proved himself equal to every emergency and to every successive task but made from the outset the impression upon the mind of those who knew him of being in possession of great reserve force perhaps the secret of this lies in part in the fact that he was accustomed to ponder deeply upon the ultimate principles of government and society and strove to base his discussions upon the firm ground of ethical truth says dr bateman he was the saddest man i ever knew it was a necessity of his nature to be much alone 
and he said that all his serious work by which he meant the process of getting down to the bedrock of first principles must be done in solitude upon one occasion he called dr bateman to him and spent more than two hours in earnest conversation upon the most serious themes at the close dr bateman said i did not know mr lincoln that it was your habit to think so deeply upon this class of subjects didn't you said mr lincoln I can almost say that I think of nothing else." One day there entered Lincoln's room a tall Southerner, a Colonel Somebody from Mississippi, whose eyes, hard glitter, spoke supercilious distrust, and whose stiff bearing betokened suppressed hostility. It was beautiful, says Dr. Bateman, to see the cold flash of the Southerner's dark eye yield to a warmer glow, and the haughty constraint melt into frank good-nature under the influence of lincoln's words of simple earnestness and unaffected cordiality they got so far in half an hour that lincoln could say in his hearty way colonel how tall are you well taller than you mr lincoln replied the mississippian you are mistaken there retorted lincoln dr bateman will you measure us you will have to permit me to stand on a chair for that responded the doctor so a big book was adjusted above the head of each, and pencil marks made at the respective points of contact with the white wall. Lincoln's altitude, as thus indicated, was a quarter inch above that of the Colonel. "'I knew it,' said Lincoln. "'They raise tall men down in Mississippi. But you go home and tell your folks that old Abe tops you a little.' The Colonel went away much mollified and impressed. "'My God!' said he to Dr. Bateman as he went out. "'There's going to be a war.' But could my people know what I have learned within the last hour? There need be no war." During the presidential campaign the vote of the city of Springfield was canvassed house by house. There were at that time twenty-three clergymen residing in the city, not all pastors. All but three of these signified their intention to vote against Lincoln. This fact seemed to grieve him somewhat. Soon after, in conversing upon the subject with Dr. Bateman, he said, as if thinking aloud, these gentlemen know that Judge Douglas does not care a cent whether slavery in the territories is voted up or voted down, for he has repeatedly told them so. They know that I do care." Then drawing from a breast-pocket a well-thumbed copy of the New Testament, he added, after a pause, tapping upon the book with his bony finger, "'I do not so understand this book.'" The poet Bryant was conspicuous among the prominent Eastern men who favored Lincoln's nomination for the presidency in 1860. He had introduced Lincoln to the people of New York at the Cooper Institute meeting of the previous winter, and was a firm believer in the Western politician. After the convention Mr. Bryant wrote Lincoln a most friendly and timely letter, full of good feeling and of wise advice. Especially did he warn Lincoln to be cautious in committing himself to any specific policy or making pledges or engagements of any kind. Mr. Bryant's letter contained much political wisdom, and was written in that scholarly style for which he was distinguished, but it could not surpass the simple dignity and grace of Lincoln's reply. Springfield, Illinois, June 28, 1860 Please accept my thanks for the honor done me by your kind letter of the 16th. I appreciate the danger against which you would guard me nor am I wanting in the purpose to avoid it. I thank you for the additional strength your words give me to maintain that purpose. Your friend and servant, A. Lincoln.
Mr. A. J. Grover relates that about this time he met Lincoln, and had a memorable conversation with him on the Fugitive Slave Law. Lincoln detested this law, but argued until it was declared unconstitutional it must be obeyed. This was a short time after the rescue of a fugitive slave at Ottawa, Illinois, by John Hossack, James Stout, Major Campbell, and others, after Judge John D. Caton, acting as United States Commissioner, had given his decision remanding him to the custody of his alleged owner, and the rescuers were either in prison or out on bail awaiting their trials. Says Mr. Grover, When Mr. Lincoln had finished his argument, I said, Constitutional or not, I will never obey the fugitive slave law. I would have done as Hossack and Stout and Campbell did at Ottawa. I will never catch and return slaves in obedience to any law or constitution. I do not believe a man's liberty can be taken from him constitutionally without a trial by jury. I believe the law to be not only unconstitutional, but most inhuman. Oh, said Mr. Lincoln, and I shall never forget his earnestness as he emphasized it by striking his hand on his knee. It is ungodly. It is ungodly. No doubt it is ungodly. But it is the law of the land, and we must obey it as we find it. I said, Mr. Lincoln, how often have you sworn to support the Constitution? We propose to elect you President. How would you look, taking an oath to support what you declare is an ungodly Constitution, and asking God to help you? He felt the force of the question, and inclining his head forward, and running his fingers through his hair several times, seemed lost in reflection. Then he placed his hand upon my knee, and said very earnestly, Grover! It's no use to be always looking up these hard spots." In the terrible years then almost upon him, Lincoln found many such hard spots, without taking the trouble to look them up. End of chapter 13b Recording by Bill Borst